Well, I wonder, what's your favourite sport? Uh, is it a rugby league or, or cricket or soccer? Do you think that you are gifted or really good at one particular sport? Uh, you can probably guess most people think that I would be really good at basketball. But I'll let you in on a secret. I'm actually hopeless at basketball. I'm, I'm really, really hopeless. I'm not just being humble. I really am bad. And <laughs> here's why. I ca actually can't jump. I'm really... It's not just that I can't jump. If I'm involved in some sort of a sprint or any sport that involves an explosive action, then I'm just not going to be very good. And that's just the way it is. But when I was at school, I used to do okay in the events where it used to you know, involve a bit of endurance, you know, sort of cross-country running. And the 1,500 metres in athletics, those were the sort of races where I didn't look like a total goose. And when I used to run in the 1,500 metres, I noticed that you know, less people joined up for that. You know, less people volunteered for that than the 100 metres. Uh, people knew if you signed up for the 1,500 metres, you were in for some pain. You know, it was only worthwhile joining you know, if you were in for the long haul. And I reckon that following Jesus is a marathon and not a sprint. And over the years, when it comes to following Jesus, some of my friends have actually thrown in the towel. It's just, they've just, it's just been too hard and they have given up. And it was really sad to see them give up in that way. Uh, they started so well. Some of my friends were much keener and much more enthusiastic than I was. You know, they seemed to be doing a lot better in their Christian life. But they just didn't last the distance. Now, I don't really know who's going to last the distance and who's not as a Christian. And that's really not for me to know. But how do I keep going year after year? You know, what are some traps for, for me to avoid, some things for me to watch out for? What could cause me to give up on following Jesus? In the passage today, Jesus talks about the great banquet that God has got ready for the end of time. And he talks about who will be attending, who will be coming to the party, and who won't. And note this, in this story, everyone accepts the invitation to the party sometime in their lives. Absolutely everyone. So what is the difference between those who are there in the final big party and those who miss out? Now that's the big question of this passage. You know, who is coming to God's great banquet? And what will stop me from missing out on God's big party at the end of time? We'll look today at those who miss out on the party and those who come along. And we'll think about what that means for our lives today. But before we start looking at the passage, uh, what is the big picture of the story so far? It's a good idea of seeing what's going on in the book of Luke. Uh, by this time in the book of Luke, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem and he's starting to make enemies. You know, last week we saw that Jesus confronted a, a Pharisee by the name of Simon. By this time in the book of Luke, it's a bit further down the track and Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees are getting less friendly. They're getting more confrontational. Uh, when Jesus tells this parable, he is at a Pharisee's house uh, for dinner. And the, it is the Sabbath, you know, the Jewish day off. And the Pharisees are carefully watching Jesus. And Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and then sent him away. And for some reason, the Pharisees didn't like that. They didn't like it at all. And so Jesus repeatedly questions the Pharisees and asks them what's going on. 
but they don't have any answers to his questions. They just sit there with nothing to say. So there is some real tension in the air as Jesus starts to tell this story. Uh, Then at the start of the passage, one of the Pharisees tries to make polite conversation. You know, he says right before the parable, in verse 15, it says this, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus then goes on and tells them the parable. Uh, We'll look at the parable in much more detail in a minute, but there's something that comes straight after the parable that is really important for us to understand what is going on. Just after this parable, Jesus says something that the Pharisees don't expect. In verse 24, it says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, who is speaking here? Uh, Right through the parable, the, the master has been speaking to one person. That's his servant. But if you look at the ESV, another Bible translation, it's got a little footnote on the word you. And that word you is actually plural. You see... Whoever is speaking is not speaking to one person anymore. He's speaking to a group. You see, verse 24, you just think, as you read it, sounds like it's being spoken by the master of the banquet. But it's actually Jesus now speaking to the Pharisees who are those around him. The point here is that Jesus is the master of the banquet. And he is the one handing out the invitations. The Pharisees can be saved, absolutely, but they need to recognise who Jesus is. In the same way, all of us need to respond to Jesus' invitation too. But what is the difference between those who respond rightly and those who don't? What is the difference between those who come to the party and those who miss out? In the parable, there are two responses to Jesus and we'll look at each of them now. Uh, Firstly, uh, we'll look at those who miss out on the party. Uh, What used to happen in Jesus' day was that people were invited and they used to RSVP and then the person holding the banquet would send out his servant to remind people that the party was on. Uh, The master of the banquet needed to know how many people were there uh, because he needed to buy the animals and then kill them and prepare them. The cook needed to know how much food there was to prepare because, you know, refrigeration didn't work. You know, you couldn't just put it back in the fridge for later. You had to eat it now. And after the cooking has started... That's when the master of the banquet sends out his servant and says, right, it's time to come along. I'll start reading from verse 16. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, look, I've just got married, so I can't come. Uh, This group is invited uh, by the master of the banquet. And at first they accept. That is why the servant is sent out to them a second time. But when the master of the banquet sends out his servant and says, you know, come, everything is now ready. That's when the excuses start. The first man's excuse is that he has bought a field and he needs to go and inspect it. But that is actually a pretty lame excuse. I don't know what buying a field is like. I've never done it. But I bought a house in Sydney a few years ago. I needed to do building inspections and property inspections and mucking around with lawyers and solicitors. 
And that took quite a long time. It was a painful process and I'm very glad that it's all over. But I needed to inspect the house and go through the contract before I bought it. You know, not afterwards. Uh, It would be unbelievably stupid to buy a property and then to start doing the inspections, you know. The man has already bought the field. He doesn't need to inspect it now. You know, the field is not going anywhere, you know. It's still going to be there tomorrow. This man just wants to inspect his field rather than go to the party. The second man's excuse is actually pretty lame as well. He says he's bought five teams of oxen and so now he wants to test them out. But in many ways, this is just like buying a field. In Jesus' day, you would take out a team of oxen and test them before you bought them. You know? The second man should have already tested his team of oxen. You know? He doesn't need to do it right now. He just can't be bothered coming to the party. The last man is, is the rudest of all. He says that he's become married. But it didn't actually say when he's become married. He might have been married for a few weeks when the servant comes knocking at the door. Uh, The big contrast between this guy and the last two, or the first two, is that he doesn't even say sorry. You know, at least the the first two men say, you know, please excuse me. But the third man doesn't even bother with that. He just says, I can't come. And the response of uh, these three men makes the master of the banquet angry. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody invited me for a wedding and then I agreed to come, it would be very rude if I pulled out right at the last minute, you know especially you know, if I had such a lame excuse. What Jesus is saying to the original hearers of the Pharisees was that the master of the banquet is now here and he calls on people to respond to him now. Uh, God has been promising his king for thousands of years, but now he is here. Don't get distracted by real estate or running the business or getting married. Don't put off following him because of anything else. Those who miss out are so often driven by their own achievements and their own agendas. They are confident in their own ability to have a good time. They can't imagine that God would put on a bigger and a better party than what they can do for themselves. There is one of two problems happening here. Either the guests really don't believe how powerful he is, or they really don't believe how generous he is. But either way, they don't really understand what God is like at all. And don't you think that we need to hear the same message? I remember at university, one of my friends was the leader of a Christian student group on campus. He was a really nice guy. And as far as I could tell, he was a Christian. He was a gifted leader (coughs) and busy serving God. But one day, he just decided to throw in the towel. He wanted to go out with this girl and he knew that she wouldn't fit in with following Jesus. So he walked away from Jesus altogether. He didn't get converted by reading some book that proved to him how God wasn't really true. He got distracted by other things. He became confident in his own ability to run his own life, his own way. He thought he knew how to run his own life best and that life would be much more fun without Jesus. But the sad thing about my friend was that his girlfriend didn't work out either. You see, he was a student from overseas and although he wanted to stay in Australia... His application for permanent residency, you know, to stay here long term, his application was rejected. He had to leave Australia and he had to leave his girlfriend. He had thrown away his Christianity for something that he thought would give him happiness, but it didn't last. 
He thought he was in control, but his life proved otherwise. Likewise, in this parable, some people got distracted and they missed out on the party. They were independent and confident that they could have a good time without God. Could that happen to us? One of the men got distracted by his wife. Could we get distracted by our friendships and our family? Could we get so busy with the kids' sport or with our new girlfriend that we just don't have time to follow Jesus? Or could we get distracted by our jobs? You know, Somehow work these days can take up a lot of time and a lot of energy. Or could we get distracted by real estate? Could you get distracted from following Jesus this year by the kitchen renovation that you just need to do? Or maybe it's time to get a bigger house and the other one's just too small. Houses are good things. Work is a good thing. Friends and family are good gifts of God. Let's not forget that. But please don't let the good things get in the way of following Jesus and responding to his invitation. Don't lose sight of God's big party. Jesus originally told this parable to a group of Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees thought that they were good people. They thought they would be worthy to go to God's banquet because of their good deeds. They thought God would favour them because they were Jewish and they did the right thing. The Pharisees were proud of their own achievements. In the same way, the guests here got distracted by their own achievements. They foolishly believed they could have a better time by themselves. They were distracted by following other things. Do you see how the things that distract us are often a form of pride? You know, on the outside, it's about my house or my car or my marriage. But deep down, it's about how I can achieve something, how I can be someone, how I can make something of myself and I don't need God to help me. It's our pride that's the big risk here. It's our pride that can cause us to miss out on God's big banquet. Jesus warns us about this right at the end of the banquet, at the end of the passage. In verse 24 it says, I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Please don't ignore the warning Jesus gives us today. So the first group all miss out on the banquet. And who are the ones who get in? I'll read from verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servants, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. What are the ones who are coming to the banquet like? Well, for Jews, they were people who normally couldn't worship God. For Jews, only people without some sort of physical defect could enter the temple. So the Jews assumed that cripples just couldn't come to God's big banquet. But Jesus says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? The poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame are the ones who are coming to God's big banquet. And the other ones who end up at the banquet are from outside the city. This probably refers to people who aren't Jews. And that would just completely freak out the Pharisees. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day thought that all the non-Jews were doomed to destruction. There was just no hope for them. But Jesus says exactly the opposite. Jesus turns the Pharisees' understanding of God's big banquet upside down. So does this mean that people need to, you know, be poor or crippled or blind to get into God's big banquet? 
Does this mean that we need to start hurting ourselves or, or give away all our money? Is that what it's saying? In the context of the passage, I think it's actually saying something quite different. Look back with me to Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. They're the few verses right before the ones we looked at today. Those verses say, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Do you see the similarity between verse 14 and verse 21 of our passage today? You see, exactly the same groups of people are described. And what is distinctive about these four groups of people? They cannot pay you back. You see, this is really not about having a low bank account balance. It is a picture of people who recognise they are spiritually poor before God. The spiritually poor know they cannot pay God back. The spiritually poor know they cannot earn God's favour. The spiritually poor know they are beggars, saved only by God's grace. So who is coming to God's great banquet? The spiritually poor are coming to God's great banquet. That's the big point that this passage is making. The spiritually poor know they will never be able to pay the host back. Nothing they will ever do could compare to the master's great banquet. They aren't proud of their own achievements. They don't get distracted. They truly appreciate the grace and the mercy of the host. Jesus invites plenty of physically well people to his party. He invites some rich people too, but everyone coming needs to know they are spiritually bankrupt. They need to know they can never pay him back for the invitation. It's because Jesus died on the cross that we can come to the banquet. It's because he has paid the penalty that our sins deserve that we can come to the banquet. It's because those who trust in him have been forgiven. That's why we can come to the banquet. It's all because of his grace. I wonder, have you ever been hospitalised? A few years ago I had a bad accident and I ended up in hospital. And I spent the first week in hospital lying on my back. And because I'd been motionless for so long, when they finally allowed me to get up, I could barely stand. I was in hospital for two weeks and, in, and, and at home for three months. In hospital I needed people to, to roll me over, and to give me food, even just to wash my hair. I couldn't do anything for myself. It was a terrible experience, but it taught me humility, at least for a little while. You know, it's, it's hard to be proud and, and self-confident and independent when someone else has to wash you and give you food and help you to stand up. As an invalid, you know that other people do things for you and you cannot pay them back. As an invalid, you are very aware of your own weakness and your inability and your need for others to help you. Being an invalid forces you to depend totally on someone else. Have you ever felt awkward about accepting help? I know I did, definitely in hospital. It feels a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? You know, we'd rather do things for ourselves. We'd rather fix things up ourselves and stay in control. But when we come before God, we cannot fix things up for ourselves. When we come before God, we are bankrupt. We are crippled. We are lame. We are paralyzed. We cannot do anything to get ourselves out of trouble. 
We are just like me in the hospital when I couldn't do anything for myself. We are totally unable to help ourselves, to fix ourselves, to make ourselves right. We have to depend totally on Jesus. We are beggars before him. We have to call on his mercy and his grace. He needs to rescue us. And without that, we are doomed to destruction. And we can never pay him back. Normally, by this time in the talk, I'd be talking about how we can apply this passage. Over the last few weeks, I've talked about you know, following Jesus and praying to God our Father and thankfully loving Jesus. You know, as someone who teaches the Bible, it's good to give people an application, something practical we can do. But this passage is not challenging us to do anything. You see, we cannot deny ourselves to save ourselves. We cannot pray harder to save ourselves. We cannot love Jesus to save ourselves. In fact, we cannot do anything to save ourselves. But we do need to know that only Jesus can save us. It's all about his grace. Uh, This passage reminds me of a time a few years ago in Sydney. Uh, My wife uh, works in St Vincent's Private Hospital as a nurse. And so to get her to work, we have to drive down this road called Oxford Street in Sydney. Now, Oxford Street is a major road and it's always busy and always crowded. In December, a few years ago, they put up these really big banners. And there were lots of these big banners all the way down Oxford Street. And each one of them said, the time of our lives, the time of our lives, the time of our lives. It was an advertisement for the fireworks on New Year's Eve on Sydney Harbour. Not only did they put up these big banners, we got a pamphlet in our mailbox and had the same words on the front, you know, the time of our lives. It told us where we could go, where we could park, and the best place to see the fireworks. And I did go and see those fireworks that year. Ah, They were pretty good. It was quite a lot of fun. But you see, the slogan reflected human pride, didn't it? I mean, the best time they could imagine was eight minutes of fireworks above Sydney Harbour. And to see the fireworks clearly, you had to queue and be in a really big crowd and you spend a long time getting home afterwards. So often, we think that we can provide the best party, that we can give ourselves the time of our lives. But God has a much bigger and a much better plan. He is getting ready a party that will be like no other. It will be awesome. It will be fantastic. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It will truly be the time of our lives. Are you coming to God's big banquet? Do you remember that you are a beggar before him? Or are you getting distracted by living a fulfilling life here and now? Please don't get distracted by your goals and achievements and earthly pleasures this year. You see, your house is not going to give you the time of your life. Your car is not going to give you the time of your life. Your marriage is not going to give you the time of your life. Jesus is offering you a seat at his banquet and you can never pay him back for that. God's great banquet will truly be the time of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you so much that he came and died on a cross so that we could be forgiven, that we could be restored, and that we could look forward to your great banquet, which will be the time of our lives. Dear God, please help us to remember that we are beggars before you who do not deserve such wonderful mercy and such wonderful grace. Help us not to get distracted, but to look forward to the day when you will return. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.